and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview that you and I did with Alexandra Lang about her new book, Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. I just love place-based histories, and this insider view of the mall offers us both a nostalgic look back at the malls of our youth, but also a really interesting look at how the architecture of the mall came to be and also how the mall took shape and was shaped by the social world around it. So I thought it was just really fascinating to take a trip back through time, but from a much more adult lens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I didn't come out a fan of malls after this book, not because of themselves in and of themselves as much as I think I realized reading Alexander's book that malls are like this private solution to public problems. And I think they're really destructive, but not that they're only destructive. I think that they speak to huge holes in the social fabric and urban life. Oh, absolutely. But I also, I mean, Alexander does make a case for them as well. It is dangerous to kind of seed public goods to private industry, which is effectively what the mall is, as a kind of social space, but one that's thoroughly commercialized. And yet there are all of these community functions that the mall, you know, as we talk about in the interview, that the death of the mall kind of threatens to take away and not having some central place where people can gather and yes, shop or not shop (laughs) as the case may be, you know, for the mall walkers. But yeah, it's definitely a, a mixed bag. What was your mall when you were growing up? Yeah. So when I was growing up, there was the Lexington Mall, which I didn't really go to that often. Um, But then there was the, at the time, the newer, bigger mall, um, which was the Fayette Mall. And I definitely have so many memories of the food court, the Sam Goodies that was there, all the different stores. I think that was also where I first saw Abercrombie and Fitch or became aware of that. You know, kind of all those big 90s brands and that sort of thing that were really popular back then, but maybe don't translate as much today. So yeah, so I have a lot of good memories of those malls. But you know, it's weird. I've noticed that as I go back home, those malls seem to have been traded in for these humongous shopping centers where you kind of move in your car from place to place and store to store rather than walking them like you would in the classic mall. You know, and I kind of like walking the mall. I mean, that's what I love about malls in Los Angeles. Which reminds me, I was fascinated during the course of reading this book and in our interview about how LA-centric the history of malls was, you know, both the architects that were the major force intellectual forces behind the development of the shopping mall were themselves Angelinos or lived in LA or spent time designing projects in LA. And one of the things I do actually enjoy about LA, I think you do too, are some of the malls. Like I know you like the Beverly Center. I do. Um, and I have like a a very interesting, let's say, attachment to the Century City Mall, which mm-hmm. I just love the indoor outdoor of malls in Los Angeles, which we never had where I was growing up. I see. Yeah. I spent a lot of time at Century City too. Deep <laughs> no in the recesses Century of Century City. City. Yeah. Doing as many drugs as I could. <laughs> Anyhow, let's listen to the conversation and recall those good old mall days. Yeah, let's do it. We're excited to have Alexandra Lang with us on the line today. 
Alexandra is an architecture critic and the author of several books, including The Design of Childhood. Her writing has appeared in numerous publications, including The New Yorker, New York Magazine, and The New York Times. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. As its title suggests, Meet Me by the Fountain explores the beginnings and development of the American shopping mall, but rewards our nostalgic gaze with a fascinating look at the mall as architectural challenge and sociological phenomenon. As a response to the changing relationships to consumerism and urban space in the post-World War II period, the shopping mall soared in popularity for Americans in large part because it offered at once a space for consumerist escape and nearly complete environmental and social control. It shaped its own social culture, as many of us know, but one that was shot through with all the prejudices of the world outside, yet promising an experiential transformation. In Meet Me by the Fountain, the shopping mall emerges as a uniquely postmodern public space grounded in our perennial human longing for social connection, and the nostalgia we feel for that space in the present demonstrates its ongoing appeal even if it is considered to be, if not dead, dying an all but certain death. Welcome to the show, Alexandra. It's a pleasure to have you join us today. And I love reflecting on my own mall experiences as a teen. Well, as you read in my introduction, that is really a universal experience in and of itself. Like everybody has a mall story and I love hearing them all actually. Oh God, I have many mall stories myself growing up in Los Angeles where I spent so much time at the mall and actually got tired of it and left in taxi cabs sometimes to go back into the city where more exciting things were happening. But I thought we could start, Alexandra, just going to the origins of the mall, how malls became constructed. Because from your book, I feel like you know there was a double reason for that. One of the reasons had to do with problems of suburbanization and suburban space that actually the more suburban space that emerged, the more difficult it was for planners and for consumers to manage, as well as with some issues with urban space, the unruly nature of urban space, the unpleasantries of urban space. So maybe take us back to that moment and the impetus for these developers to start pushing malls. I mean, one of the most fascinating things for me in terms of my own thinking while I was developing this research was to think about what the government was subsidizing in terms of urban planning post-war. So we kind of all know the government subsidized single family home building, you know, sprawl through low interest mortgages. And then we also know that this government subsidized highways by these huge federal spending acts that built the highways out to those new little houses, the ticky tacky little boxes, et cetera. But what the government didn't subsidize was a place kind of in between those two spaces, in between the roads and the houses. So where were people supposed to go? Like, where did they imagine that people would go when they were not in their home and office? And that's where the mall came in. And so once I began thinking of the mall as this kind of in-between space that kind of had to happen so that the suburbs weren't even more dystopian than they, you know, some people feel they are. It really opened up a whole line of questioning for me about kind of what the government's willing to pay for and kind of what human needs are in terms of the spaces that we all exist in both apart and together. So the government was very aware of how people should exist apart, but it took developers, insurance companies, and architects to figure out the space that people could come together in. 
And when those developers made the case to the government, then did like the Federal Housing Authority begin to subsidize malls? You know, how much money were these developers getting from the government in the beginning to make these spaces? They weren't by and large getting money from the government. I mean, a few public housing developments included shopping strips or, you know, small shopping areas as part of their development. But by and large, mall development was privately funded. There were some kind of beneficial financial arrangements with insurance companies that would kind of back the loans that allowed people to buy the lands for malls. But by and large, it was a privately funded, privately conceived etc. kind of building. And in fact, a lot of the prime movers behind the early malls were the owners of major department stores in their respective cities. So those department store owners were like big names in the city, had a huge civic presence, often you know funded the symphony and the museums. And when they saw that their customers were starting to move to the suburbs, they were like, wait a second, like what are we going to do? And they became the anchor stores and the anchor investors, in fact, for the new shopping malls. I want to talk a little bit about at least in most of your book, you set up as the kind of two main architects who designed what come to be our contemporary malls. So the first one that I'd love to hear you talk about is Victor Gruen, who's the man that kind of first conceived of the mall as we know it today to solve what, and I love this phrasing, what he described as, quote unquote, a problem particular to Los Angeles, which is (laughs) basically something that all Angelinos know, which is that there are shops all along these major thoroughfares in the city, but you can't get to them except by using a car. So can you talk a little bit about how Victor imagined the shopping mall as something that would be an alternative to that? So Victor Ruin, you have to understand, was a Viennese emigre. So he had grown up in Vienna. He fled the Nazis and came to New York in 1938. And he ended up designing some very spectacular little stores in New York City that caught the eye of a number of department store owners who then brought him out to the West Coast to design their stores. But yeah, the first thing he noticed was, yes, he's designing stores for Los Angeles in the immediate like pre and post-war era. And to get from his store to the next door store, you have to like drive in and out of the parking lot in this incredibly awkward way. And as somebody who'd grown up in a very walkable, beautiful European city, he thought this was kind of bananas. And so he essentially conceived first a more integrated form of the shopping center and then the indoor mall as a way of eliminating that awkwardness and that car centricity and giving people a pedestrian area that they could stroll around, do multiple errands, you know, sit at a sidewalk cafe. So it was very, this very European vision that's then embedded in this sprawling post-war American development. And then the kind of guy that flips this around and gives us what I guess I would describe as our more postmodern mall, (laughs) the one that's with its swooping architecture and kind of, as you described really beautifully, an easy ability to get lost and just continue trekking around is John Gerda. And he designs malls basically to do the opposite. So to move from the suburban enclave back into the urban center. And he designs this all around something that I found really fascinating that Ray Bradbury basically wrote an essay for LA Times Magazine in the 1970s that was describing basically the kind of shopping center that we have today. So can you talk a little bit about how John Gerardy like changed the way that we could conceive of a shopping center and a shopping mall? 
John Journey is a really interesting figure because, yes, he's a very important postmodern architect, but he's often left out of the accounts of postmodernism because he was a mall architect. So he's kind of seen as like a dirty designer in a way because he was all about consumerism and theme parks and kind of showmanship. And a lot of times, you know, architecture criticism takes itself very seriously and they didn't really know what to do with John Dirty. So John Dirty's kind of heyday is really like the 80s into the 90s. And by that time, the model that Gruen had established of, you know, kind of a central atrium with shops all around it, greenery, fountains, places to sit had become a bit stale. Like you could find that anywhere. And Jerdy really felt like you had to pump up the volume and also make malls about more than shopping. He really brought this entertainment lens to the mall. Like what is going to make people come out of their houses? It's entertainment. So his most famous mall is the Mall of America, where instead of there being a nice, tasteful fountain in the center, there is a roller coaster. (laughs) And I just, I love that moment where you're like, oh, okay, I can put a roller coaster in a mall? Like, who thinks of that? And I mean, that, I think, is Jerdy's genius. But the other part of his genius was really to understand that people wanted to be wooed almost cinematically to move through the mall, that it didn't actually need to be so understandable as a space with a clear hierarchy, as long as people were entertained the whole time. So then you get something like Universal City Walk in downtown Los Angeles, where, you know, King Kong is popping out of one building and there's a splash pad somewhere else. And so you're kind of moving from episode to episode or scene to scene. And most of his projects were like that. They had this ability to make you get lost, but the whole time there was always something else to look at. Yeah, Jared was someone who really interested me in this because his malls are, you know, malls that I'm very familiar with here in Los Angeles. And also you describe him as like the evil twin to Frank Gehry. But to my mind, you know, they have a lot in common and the kind of mollification of urban space doesn't stop at the shopping mall. And I think it's that top down kind of urban planning that sees the city as a problem to solve where I see a lot of parallel between someone like him and Gary, like Grand Avenue, you know, in downtown Los Angeles, for instance, being this example of a place that is outdoors and, you know, ostensibly still urban space, but is being engineered to be a very specific kind of space and a space that will keep people out, that will kind of pave over certain urban issues that have long histories and should be dealt with as opposed to just being ignored. So maybe you can talk about that element and the way that the malls first exist in the suburbs, then they come to urban spaces. They are, in a sense, part of urban renewal. Take us from the time where the malls were in the suburbs then to when they came back to the city. Well, as I mentioned earlier, it was department store owners who were urban who ended up funding a lot of the development of malls in the suburbs. They anticipated in some way that they would cannibalize their own consumer base and that their stores in the cities would have less business, but they felt they had no choice but to follow the consumers into the suburbs. But then by the 1970s, you know, like 1960s is the really the first big mall boom. So by the 1970s, a lot of downtown areas are really getting emptied out. Like you have office workers coming in and they kind of drive in, drive out, but there's not a lot for them on the streets. The downtown department stores, which tended to be, you know, pretty big buildings, they don't really need that much space anymore. 
And so the same city leaders come back and they say, okay, what if we brought some of the things that people like about malls back to the city? And you see that manifested in a bunch of different ways. My favorite one that I actually think still has a lot of resonance is a lot of adaptive reuse projects. The most famous one is probably Faneuil Hall in Boston, where they took these old industrial sort of wharf buildings right by the waterfront in Boston, like literally visible from Boston City Hall, and turned it into a pedestrian street with local businesses and jugglers and banners and this sense of like an everyday festival. So they kind of brand this part of the city, as well as rescuing some buildings that would otherwise probably have been demolished. And they make it into something that suburbanites will actually come back into the city for. It also serves those office workers. It also serves people who are living downtown. So it really has kind of three customer bases. And for a while, it does really well and gets replicated in a bunch of other cities. The kind of smaller version of that, like the less big budget version, is just to put a pedestrian mall in your city to take some of your streets off the car grid. And those often come with an additional layer of kind of organization called a business improvement district, which business owners pay into, and then they pay for extra signage, extra streets cleaning, sometimes extra security. And that's where you start to get this question, like, is this a public space or is it a private space? Who is actually welcome in what ostensibly seems like city streets? And let me ask you just one follow-up on that. You know, something about, I think everyone knows the Gruen transfer, this idea that Victor Gruen designed that the mall would be you know, laid out in a way that you would kind of lose yourself and you would go from like a task-oriented shopping excursion to fading more into just pleasure. I always thought that something about that was also kind of gearing a customer to disorientation so that malls were actually laid out kind of like casinos to be confusing. Yeah. I mean, I don't actually find most malls confusing. Like a lot of people have said that to me and I'm like, I don't necessarily get that. I think your classic mall that is basically like department store at one end, department store at the other and like two rows of shops facing each other. Like that doesn't actually seem so confusing to me. I mean, they do get added onto and they do get larger, but I think the casino comparison is really kind of better suited to the journey era malls where there are, there's a lot more kind of going on with the architecture of the mall itself on top of all of the brand experiences. So that is a little bit more of a like 80s to 90s phenomenon in malls. I mean, I think Gruen's malls were actually tended to be, you know, pretty simple and stylish and modernist. So they have a strong structure and a fairly simple layout. So the Gruen transfer is really more, yeah, just about that kind of losing yourself in shopping rather than the kind of physical losing of yourself. I guess I'm just paranoid. Yeah. I always thought it was about making people get confused so they would buy more. So they would feel desperate and then fill up that anxiety with purchasing. That's not my interpretation of it. And I don't really think so. I think Gruen was just incredibly sharp about human nature. Like, I think we lose ourselves actually more easily than that. Like, it doesn't need to be this big moment of disorientation. It just needs to be like, oh, another sight, another smell, like something appealing over there on the opposite side of the mall. And suddenly you've like forgotten what's on your list. I think 
the other kind of weird dichotomy here, or the irony that you bring out, is that on the one hand, the mall represents at least for the teens who, you know, and teen culture is kind of inextricable from the mall, at least in the 80s and 90s. It's a site of liberation, right? It's a place where, as you describe, people can maybe make out for the first time or <laughs> definitely experience what it might be like to be an adult because kids have now disposable income. It's also a place for increasingly double income parents to kind of drop kids off, kind of the mall as a babysitter. But what you also kind of roll out in your account of the history of the shopping mall is that the mall is a site of intense surveillance and social control, the security guards that are everywhere, and that that also invites this element of racial discrimination that takes place inside of malls, you know, where people of color, for example, are followed by store monitors while their white counterparts are left to wander at their leisure. And I'm wondering, was this always a part of the design of the mall? Or was this something that developed as a kind of socius starts to take shape inside of the mall? The mall is, in its essence, a racist slash segregationist form because the mall builds on the same racist practices as the people who built suburbs post-war. Like the mall was built to serve the people living in post-war suburbs. The people living in those post-war suburbs were by and large white because of redlining, homeowners associations, and other more broad planning practices. So the mall was designed to serve basically like white women and their children who were at home during the week while their husbands like drove back to work at their suburban office parks or back in the city. And even, you know, transportation practices like bus stops were often put on the edge of a mall parking lot or even across the highway from a mall because the mall owners weren't really interested in the kind of people, quote unquote, who would take the bus, you know, lower income people. So there are segregationist practices kind of throughout the history of the mall. And then as the suburbs diversify and more different types of kids, for example, are using the mall, you see the security practices of the mall and the way codes of conduct for malls are written start to target black and brown kids, essentially. And in that chapter of my book, I talk a lot about how teen media actually reflects this reality. So a lot of the famous scenes in teen media, you know, Mean Girls Clueless, where people are shopping at the mall, when you stop to think about it, it's like, oh, those are white teens that are feeling the freedom of that disposable income and showing off their outfits, et cetera, at the mall. And then you see shows like Everybody Hates Chris or Blackish, and they have this scene that's repeated like numerous times across different shows where the security guard picks up the black kid for shoplifting and they have not shoplifted and the parent has to come and kind of spring them from mall jail uh, down in the bowels of the mall. So, I mean, there are a lot of ways that malls are policed and over-policed and they definitely you know, target people of different backgrounds. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Alexandra Lang, author of Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I 
I'm so happy to have Elvia Wilk on the line. Elvia Wilk is the author most recently of a book of essays called Death by Landscape, and she's here to give me a book recommendation. Thank you, Kate. Yes, I came with two book recommendations. The first was The Wall by the Austrian writer Marlon Haushofer, which came out in 63 and has just been reissued. But I asked you if others had recommended it and you said yes. <laughs> so I'm just going to bump that recommendation and add another one. My favorite book that I've read this year is a book by Ned Bowman called Venomous Lump Sucker. I think it's just about to come out. It's an incredible piece of science fiction. It begins with an author's note that says something to the effect of every single thing in this book is depicted in exactly the way it will happen in the future except for the currency conversions, which have <laughs> not been made. All of the currencies are in 2022 values, so they're easy to understand. <laughs> and I thought this was just a fantastic way of acknowledging what we expect from science fiction and poking fun at this idea of future prediction. And then delightfully, you discover that the book does deliver an incredible amount of future invention. And a lot of it is totally plausible and possible. A lot of it is totally outlandish, but you believe everything. And it gave me a lot of new ways of thinking about the current climate crisis and extinction. So in this world of venomous lumpsucker, the species that are going extinct count for extinction credits and major corporations have to pay extinction credits if they are doing activities like mining that destroy natural habitats, just like carbon credits, which exist. But there's a caveat that if a species has been properly documented virtually and rendered, that it doesn't count as extinct. So if you can recreate it kind of in digital form, it might as well still exist. So one need not pay an extinction credit for a species that they have properly preserved in digital form. And I was recently at the Natural History Museum in Berlin, where they're undergoing a massive digitization effort to digitize over 30 million specimens in the natural history collection. And I had a lot of interesting conversations with the museum director and curators about why one might digitize so many species. And I couldn't stop thinking about Ned Bowman's book, where we have a future in which so many species have gone extinct and they all exist in a virtual repository somewhere. And this is where we can access them. I highly recommend reading this book. That is only one of a million fantastic inventions that Ned Bowman makes. Oh my God, that sounds awful. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> not the book, but just the idea. It like makes my skin crawl to imagine that the corpse could get off just by digitizing. Totally. That, that really hurts. It really hurts. And it hurts because it feels right. It feels real. I mean, yeah. it feels oh. like it might happen. Totally. I'm sure. Yes. I'm sure it probably is happening on some level somewhere. I mean, we know it is. Well, we anyways, know it is. that sounds like a great yet awful book. <laughs> tell, tell me, tell us the author and the title one more time. The author is Ned Bowman and the book is Venomous Lumpsucker. Great title. Thank you so much, Elvia, for coming back. Thank you. That was Elvia Wilk. Her new book is Deaths by Landscape. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Alexandra Lang, author of Meet Me by the Fountain. 
The Fulton Street Mall is an interesting case study. I don't know if it, I can't remember now from the book, if it started out as a mall or if it was kind of pedestrianized and that's what made it into a mall. But it had to do with, you know, white flight from this area of Brooklyn. And then it's reclaimed more by the actual people who live in the area at that time. And it becomes a success. Yeah. Yeah. You're talking about Fulton Street in downtown Brooklyn. So Fulton Street was sort of a historic shopping area. Brooklyn's giant maze was built on that street, like in the early part of the 20th century. And a lot of subway lines converge under it. So it was always like a really important shopping area for broader Brooklyn. Um, In the 70s, like a lot of places, there was white flight from Brooklyn and the merchants who were located along Fulton Street got nervous and they got together and created a business improvement district and pedestrianized the street. It's actually a transit way because buses can drive down it, just not cars, but that's a technicality. So Fulton Street continued after that to be a really successful shopping area if you look at the sales per square feet. However, the shoppers that were shopping there were by and large Black. And some of the business owners continued to be distressed like that, despite the fact that they were making money, because it wasn't the shoppers that they had dreamed of, or, you know, it wasn't the shoppers that, you know, malls and department store owners we're always heading for, which who are basically white, middle and upper middle class shoppers. So various things have happened, you know, Fulton Mall over the years. I have to say I was there recently and it's in a little bit of post pandemic distress, but I think it's going to bounce back because one of the things that's changed in the area is now there are about 20,000 more permanent residents living in downtown Brooklyn. So I think we're about to see the next evolution of Fulton Mall hopefully to still serve the shoppers from across Brooklyn who come downtown to shop that see that as kind of a central meeting spot, but also to serve a lot of the residents that are just kind of living upstairs from those shops now. So you read a lot of movies and TV shows in the course of talking about malls, right? Yeah. And it seems to me that at least if we're talking about from the 80s to the 90s and then early 2000s, the reason you do that is because the mall itself is a kind of movie set. And that, in fact, it is a a closed system in which a scene or an experience can happen. So I'm curious to hear you talk about the mall as its own kind of narrative and kind of what that means culturally for us, that the mall became the center of a kind of story for American teenagers, but also for American culture. Yeah, my editor insisted that this book be written in chronological order. So each chapter covers roughly a decade. And then I tried to decide like, what is the innovation of the mall in this decade? And in the early chapters, it's very clear that these are kind of planning urban design architectural innovations. You have Gruen, you have James Rouse, who is the developer of Faneuil Hall, you have John Jurdy. But then when we get to the 80s and 90s, the mall as a form is kind of fixed. Like we all know what the mall is. And I felt like the cultural heat was around how the mall was being translated into other forms of culture, like all of those teen movies. And so 
I decided, I mean, I love movies and film anyway. So I was like, okay, I'm going to stop being an architecture critic here for a little while. I'm going to be a cultural critic or a movie critic and talk about how those malls appear in movies. And I mean, one of my favorite scenes that I think illustrates what you're trying to get at really well is the scene in Clueless where Cher and Christian are coming up the escalator into this light-filled atrium in, now I'm forgetting which mall it is, of course. It's the Galleria, uh, right? Yeah, in the in the Westwood Galleria, yeah. yeah. So they come up into this space and the mall is basically creating a halo of light around them. Like here are these beautiful, young, rich teens. Um, we're supposed to see them as infinitely desirable and they are centered in this very neoclassical mall architecture. And then that's all on purpose. Like that is how the architects have set it up so that you feel like you are special when you come up the escalator into the mall. You feel like, oh, the central atrium is calling me. This is where I want to sit. This is where we can go to see and be seen. So I think the films just provide this kind of shorthand for people of, of the feeling that the architects were trying to create for you. And I just felt like that's the way to tell that story. We haven't talked that much yet about the actual architecture of malls. I know you travel to see a lot of different malls. And in particular, when you talked about this mall, I think, is it Northgate? North Park in Dallas. North Park in yeah. Dallas. Yeah. yeah, that was a mall. I mean, again, I think that I'm more skeptical about kind of like the business of architecture anyways. So you draw this distinction, like serious architects make museums, you know, and, and bad architects make malls. I don't know if I truly believe that because I think, again, there's just there's so many parallels in what these things are doing as destinations usually anyways. But the North Park sounded like a museum. I mean, it sounded like such a beautifully constructed mall that had a lot of artistry. I just want to say, like, I don't believe that either. Like, I, I mean, I'm sort of saying that in the tone of the official architecture critic that I'm trying not to be. Many of my colleagues were completely skeptical about this book project. And I was like, I know there's so much material. It's going to be great. People want to know about this. Trust me. But yeah, I think North, North Park in Dallas is a mall that's the closest a mall can come to a museum because it has, we would say, very kind of high modernist architecture. Everything is white and gray and super simple. There's a very simple, consistent branding. And then the family that owns it, the Nasher family, which has owned it continuously since 1965, actually has this giant sculpture collection. It's the same family that built the Nasher Sculpture Center in downtown Dallas. And they show that art in the mall. So when you are at H&M, you can step out and there is a Marc de Souvereau sculpture and a huge one and a great one, like not a cheap sort of, I don't know, knockoff print one. So yeah, that is a mall that I have directed many people to go to, you know, over the past 15 years since I first went there myself and everybody I know is really knocked out by it. And also Dallasites are very proud of it. Like it's on their list of kind of like top 10 things to do in Dallas. So, you know, there's definitely a feeling throughout the book that the death of malls was predicted, you know, as early in the 70s or malls as a place where, per George Romero, dead people, zombies <laughs> already are, which, of course, you know, I, I think I, I really 
related to your book as someone who's spent so much time in malls and, and really enjoys, especially certain malls, like within ethnic enclaves. So here in Los Angeles and little Tokyo or in Koreatown, it's really pleasurable to go to those kind of malls for me. Malls where, you know, it's just a lot of big chain stores I'm less interested in, but there's a sense that the mall is dying. Do you think it's a good thing if it does die? Especially like the mindset of the mall, the mindset in terms of urban planning of mm. this, this big building that's going to solve all the problems of the suburbs and the city, <laughs> you know, instead of solving those problems, we'll just build a big mall. No, I mean, I think it's fine for that mindset to die. I think that dead malls are a much larger and more interesting problem that we do need to solve. I mean, I have a chapter where I talk a lot about dead mall photography as a subset of ruin porn, which is very popular, but I feel like that kind of photography doesn't really contend with the actual fact on the ground of this large dead space in the middle of your town. So I think it's fine for people not to build any new malls, but I think that malls still serve a really vital, like, community, retail, and social purpose in a lot of communities. And I think that dead malls, you know, need to be thought of creatively as spaces that maybe can knit some of those cities back together, because there's just a tremendous amount of square footage inside the mall and outside in the parking lot. And if people in suburbs are starting to think about how to make them more dense, how to make them less like large scale urban planning and more attuned to the everyday existence of those communities, I think that the mall space can be used and replanned to provide some of that like smaller scale community planning. I also think that related to this, and this is what I found fascinating about, I also very much enjoy mall wave um, Muzak, I mean, I guess (laughs) is really what it is. So for listeners, mall wave is basically a post 2000s music genre in which you play 80s, 90s Muzak or sound alikes and then increase reverb so that it sounds like it's coming out of these echoing empty malls. Similar to the invocation of ruin porn, both of these aesthetic forms are saturated with nostalgia, right? So even if the mall is dead and has been proclaimed to be dying for decades, it does seem that the public has a very unique gripping attachment to the form of the mall. And I'm just wondering if you can describe a little bit like why that attachment still persists in a time when, you know, we all shop via e-commerce a lot, or we, (laughs) you know, because of the pandemic, we're afraid to go to large public places. So can you talk about this enduring nostalgia for the mall? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about Mall Wave is that it was made by kids who are not as old as I am, like who were not kids in the 80s. Right. So like I understand that like 80s babies have mall nostalgia because they went to the mall when they were teenagers. Being a teenager is a very intense emotional time. And I think things that you did then, clothes that you wore then, music that you listened to then still has a lot of importance in all of our lives. I mean, part of the reason I think I like Ball Wave is, oh, Toto. I used to hear that in the car with my dad on the way to soccer practice. That song is embedded so deeply in the back of my brain. I have to feel something. So that's like the 80s baby's nostalgia and the Duffer 
brothers who made Stranger Things are 80s babies. They actually grew up in the same town that I did. I didn't find that out until later. (laughs) But the kids, I, I guess I can call them kids, making Mall Wave are actually much younger than that. And so they are in some ways manufacturing a soundtrack for the lives that they didn't get to have. They see the media from the 80s. They see kind of the end of these malls built in the 80s and 90s. And they think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I had had that experience? Wouldn't it be nice if I had a place to go, if I you know, wasn't just gaming online with my friends, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think a combination of like true nostalgia from people who had that experience and a sense from younger people in their 20s and teens now that they would have liked to have a space like that and what is going to provide an actual physical space for them now. So I I just feel ultimately whatever happens with the mall, we have a human need to come together in a public space with low economic and social lift you know, you don't have to do that much when you're at the mall. You can just wander around. You can spend $5 on a drink. And so regardless of what happens to the malls, we need to figure out a way to make those spaces because that's part of what the mall wave people are trying to create for themselves. And that's part of what some of us, you know, middle-aged people would also like to do maybe with our kids. Yeah. Your book made me remember a friend of mine who was in labor in the summer here in Los Angeles and had to walk, but it was like 110 degrees. So the only place they could go was climate controlled was the Glendale Galleria to walk, you know, endlessly in circles. Yeah, no, I have, I have a friend who is pregnant and lives in LA and she said exactly the same thing. She said throughout her whole pregnancy, like, where could you go to just walk and be air conditioned and get a beverage and not be too far from a bathroom? And it was them all. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is, that's the thing, you know, again, I, I feel like it points to problems in the city itself, like lack of shade, shade inequity, things that like, yeah, instead of having to go to a climate controlled space, we should plant more trees or we should consider shade in everything that we do. And these long boulevards here in Los Angeles that are just in full sun are a problem. But at the same time, you know, without that being solved, all in one gasp, the mall represents as much as it's a contested space for a lot of people. It also has this safe quality that it can be temperate. There are bathrooms. There's still a possibility of using it almost as a public resource for a lack of real public resources. Right. Like I would never say, and I hope it's clear in the book that I wouldn't say that like the public realm should not provide these things. But here we are in 2022, and is the public realm providing those things? No. So if there is a private realm that is providing those things and you know, kind of taking some of the pressure off, I just don't feel that we can reject that. And in fact, I think the public realm has lessons to be learned from the mall about like what are these basic things that you should provide. And I have a section in the book on mall walkers, which is you know kind of related to the the pregnant lady need for air conditioned space, which is that again, malls seem to older people to be better maintained, have bathrooms, have benches, have, you know, smooth surfaces without, you know, trees growing in the middle of the sidewalk. And so like, that's why they've proved so popular for older people to, you know, go every day and take their exercise. And many of them have found community there of all different sorts. So, yeah, I mean, 
obviously like the mall is an ambivalent space and it's, you know, not 100% good, but there are good things about it. The mall is 70 years old. It has all of these qualities that it didn't when it started out. We as a culture have made it into things that probably Victor Gruen never could have imagined. Then one last question for you as we wrap up is towards the end of the book, you talk about the future of the mall. And part of that future you actually see outside of America in, you know, cities like Seoul, for example. Can you talk about what's going on in contemporary mall culture outside the U.S. that you see as a kind of trajectory for the future? Yeah. I mean, one of the main things about malls outside the U.S., and this is true of both malls in Asia and also malls in South America, is that they're much more urban. Like anytime you build a new mall in the Philippines or in Seoul or in Santiago, it's going to be over a new subway stop or a new light rail stop. And the mall's pretty often have, you know, government offices in them. Like if you need to renew your driver's license, you might do that at a mall. And they often have extensive facilities for families, like many versions of John Jurdy's amusement park in the center of the mall. Again, places where families can go and spend the day and do things that are other than shopping. Though, of course, they are spending money on the concessions. So I think in other places in the world, malls are much more integrated into the overall urban planning and much more integrated into kind of the the possibility of community function than they are in the U.S. And in a lot of places, they also are structured differently in terms of who can get leases for shops in the malls. So you see many fewer big international chains and many more local businesses. The mall was an American invention, but then other countries took it and made it their own. And I think there's a lot that we could learn here about saving our malls, about any new mass retail construction from those other countries, because at this point, they're just doing it in a smarter way. Well, let's, let's hope that we do learn something and (laughs) (laughs) I know, I mean, I'm always, there's something always like, yes, can we learn lessons? Can, can we read history? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. To be determined, but, but let's hope save the Beverly center because (laughs) it is my childhood. So thank you so much, Alexandra, for, for talking with us today. Sure. Thank you. That was Alexandra Lang. Her new book is Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.